all the cost increases related to materials, they're largely done. Okay? Now, now we're going back to normal cycles, right? Eight, 10% a year. Um, but the bit that's going to hit us now is labor. Labor's, labor will be the 2022, 2023 thing. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 92 of the show. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing? Keeping well? I've been good. Pretty bloody busy. Since the last episode of the show, been heaps going on, mainly related to capital raising for a project that I'm working on that settles in a month or so. So I've been very busy putting together an investment proposal and finding people to invest in the project. So it's taken up a lot of my time. And I've also been working on the planning application that's been related to that project. So a lot of activity on that project. Sadly, on my other project, there hasn't really been a great deal happening over the last couple of months. We got to the frames stage pretty quickly or the start of the frame stage and then things really slowed down. So it wasn't great, but uh, the builder has taken steps to rectify that and we've got a new framer on site and I met with them last week and they are already making great progress. So hopefully we can make up some lost ground and get things back on track because there wasn't a lot going on and it was getting a bit frustrating, but I think there's a lot of people out there who know exactly what I mean. But onwards and upwards from here, we can't change the past, but we can try to influence the future. Since the last episode, I also got my book out, Become a Million Dollar Property Developer, and I've been astonished at the response that I've had. I actually sold out of my first print run of the book, so I had to get more books printed, which was pretty exciting to have to do. So thank you to everyone out there who's bought a copy of the book. I hope you're enjoying it. I've put a lot of heart and soul into it to try and make it valuable and helpful. In many ways, it's the kind of book I wish was around before I started looking to get into property development. So if that's you, then have a look at it. Head over to www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com forward slash book and see whether it might be something for you to add to your library. The training has also been going really, really well. Lots of people still signing up. I've actually been working on a new training to add to it called Taking It to the Next Level for those people that want to go bigger. So once you've finished the property developer training, people can go on and do that training as well. If you're interested in getting started in property development, then be sure to head over to propertydevelopertraining.com and have a look at what I've put together. Uh, Lots of people think it's been really great, so check that out. And just quickly take the property developer quiz if you're interested in seeing how ready you might be to become a property developer. That can be found at propertydevelopertraining.com forward slash quiz. So be sure to check that out. And... Stay up to date with me on my Insta and Facebook pages under Property Developer Podcast. See what I'm up to. Try and post photos there of the project so you can see how things are going. But it's been a busy couple of months, so it was nice to get back 
behind the microphone or in front of the microphone and have a chat with a colleague of mine, a guy called Henry Villa from Stone Horizon. So Henry is a property developer and then became a builder. He started doing his own projects and then thought, I really should be doing this myself. He was having so many issues with builders that he thought, I'll just become the builder. And so that's what he decided to do. And we had a great conversation about developing for cash flow, something that I'm particularly interested in. We talk about how to navigate your way through the current environment in the building industry with escalating build costs and time blowouts and what you can do to try and mitigate that. Lots of really good stuff uh, in there from Henry about how you can do that. And of course, we talked about how a property developer can get the most out of a relationship with a builder. So again, some really great tips from someone who has a foot in both camps. Be sure to keep an ear out for Henry's view on why it's really difficult to just compare prices when it comes to deciding on who the builder should be on your project. It's great to have another conversation with a builder and particularly one who's a developer who understands both sides of the of the fence. So without further ado, let's kick off by finding out what food Henry would eat until he was sick. Uh, quite literally donuts, I think. Good donuts, though, not, not crappy ones. Um, and I've eaten them until I'm sick. So, yeah, there you go. That's probably the better fit. Just the plain oh, old cinnamon ones or the hot jam donuts? Uh, listen, I'm not picky. Uh, but with donuts, I find, you know, sometimes the more complex you make them, the worse it is. So, um, yeah, simple ones are better. Uh, there's nothing like a hot, fresh donut. They're so good when they're freshly nice and warm and sprinkled with cinnamon. Absolutely. Mm. All right. Well, Henry, we're here to talk property development. So you're a builder and a developer. So it's always good to have builders on this show to provide some insight on what is a really key part of any development, the construction side. So give us a bit of a background of yourself and how you became a builder and the kind of projects that you focus on. Yeah, listen, so I um, I became a developer first, uh, which is um, which is actually rare in uh, for most builders. Most builders become builder, builders first and then they start doing their own projects. Uh, but for me, the world started very differently. So I spent 20, 25 years in the corporate world, in uh, you know, boring jobs in an office, um, loving my life. And at the time, I used to really, really enjoy what I did. But one day, I just fell in love, uh, fell out of love with it. So I was traveling a lot. Uh, last year, as an employee, I spent 220 nights away from home. Uh, had little kids at the time. Uh, I didn't quite understand what was happening. And I just couldn't do it anymore. I, I kind of got got really, really sick of the travel, really, really sick of uh, of putting up with all the corporate politics and things like that. So I started having a look around. And of course, like many of us listening to this, uh, property was the solution for me. Um, I decided I was yeah going to leverage property to not only uh, replace my income, quit my job, uh, but also to create long-term wealth for me and my family. 
So after kind of, you know, doing all the courses and getting all the mentors and having a look at the market out there, I uh, I realized that development was probably where my skill set was a better fit. Is I have used to, you know, planning and execution uh, of really kind of big, um, big projects at the time. So so development probably didn't sound too big or too scary for me. So I kind of went down that path, and then I found what a lot of developers unfortunately find out there when they start doing developments, which is there's a ton of dodgy builders. Um, and I really, really struggled to find a builder that I could partner with and do this project with in a way that didn't represent a major risk for myself. And again, coming from that sort of business consulting background, um, I just thought I could do it better. Uh, I could very, very easily identify what the shortcomings in the industry were. I, I could very, very easily tell how a builder who really wanted to do things differently could actually make a difference and could capture um, a different part of the market. And then one of my friends once told me, oh, well, if that's true, then why don't you do it? So oh, maybe I'll do it. <laughs> uh, and then that eventually turned into a reality. So I became a builder first to do my own projects. Uh, and then, of course, we decided to kind of, you know, share the love a little bit and make sure that other people uh, got access to those services as well. So before I ask you about the type of projects that you did, what was it that drew you to property? Did you have a connection previously or you just identified it as a vehicle or sector that could get you where you wanted to go? Um, yeah, so for me, pro- property was probably one of four or five things I looked at. Uh, and they, what really, really made a difference in, in kind of me kind of going down that path is it looked, um, the, the level of risk on property projects was to me very clear and very manageable. So, um, you know, I, I come from a kind of project risk background uh, a zillion years ago. So I didn't want something super volatile that really depended on, on you know, the whims of the market or, or, or kind of unpredictable cycles. And while there's risk everywhere, a property is no different to that, uh, to me, it was very, very easy to put the finger on how do we create value in property and that, you know, if we manage that process correctly, we... We, you know, we were going to end up with a positive outcome. You know, a little bit more money, a little bit less money, maybe. Um, but in any case, it was really, really hard, or so I thought at the time, uh, to get into a project that was going to get me into real, real trouble. Well, that's interesting. Uh, okay, so it's also relatively simple to understand in the big scheme of things. Yes, that's true. And so, your projects—what kind of projects were you looking to tackle that you then thought I'm just going to build them myself? Yeah, so so listen, so I started I started doing developments in the kind of small scale kind of development side of things. So two, threes, fours. And I still do a lot of projects in that space uh, directly because um I find that's probably where um you know where most of the difference can be made as a as a builder. And again, having an affinity with those projects as a builder. Um, 
know, makes it easy for me to do them as a developer too. Uh, the bigger projects, like the one you have in your background at the moment, you know, fives, tens, uh, t- you know, 20 townhouses tend to attract a different kind of builder, much more industrialized, much more kind of, you know, process oriented, um, probably a little bit more mature. Um, but what I found is in the, you know, in the twos, threes and fours, um, we had a whole bunch of like carpenters turned builders uh, who did it in a really, really long no, no uh, disrespect to carpenters. I have a lot of good carpenters, turn builders out there who are doing a great job. Um, but there's a lot of trades who turns into builders and don't don't necessarily appreciate the business side of things or how important it is. And because the projects are relatively smaller in scale, it's really, you know, it's easier for them to fudge that for a while and uh, until they're in real trouble. So that mixed with the fact that I needed something small enough that I could tackle on my own uh, and with the support I had around me at the time um, made it made it the perfect place to start. So it says, well, the project I was doing as a developer is where the market needed more help and it, it was probably better uh, for me to start there than trying to pretend that I was going to start doing, you know, 20 townhouse projects uh, of the one go. And then what are the things that you found when you became a builder that perhaps you hadn't expected or that provide some insight for a developer or being a developer? Yeah, uh, well, this is a couple of things, right? So the the first thing is, um, you know, it really, really looked easy from the outside. Yeah, okay, you, you know, you're, you're the builder, you kind of go out there and get a whole bunch of subcontractors, you know, put, you know, these hundred activities in the right order, pay them off, and everything should be okay. Uh, I very, 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 very quickly and painfully realized uh, that that's actually not the way it works, um, that there's a lot more involved there. We also tend to think that builders in general make more money than they do. Um, you know, we think uh, we're paying a million dollars to this builder to build, you know, this duplex or whatever. And um, a lot of people out there think that the builder is making a million dollars. Gee, sounds like a great deal, right? Uh, but margins in construction are tiny. Um, so you have an industry where, you know, you have a lot of complexities. You know, you have probably a couple hundred people involved in a in a small build. Uh, you have a tiny little margin. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything ultimately can relies on you and what you're doing. So, yeah. The risk is actually pretty high if you don't know how to manage it, which is, I think, why a lot of these builders get in trouble. I mean, we're seeing unprecedented, you know, um, number of builders going into administration at the moment as we're recording this, and 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 I don't think that's going to stop uh, anytime soon. And I believe it's primarily because of the kind of risk reward balance in uh, in building and construction is such that if you, you know, take your eyes off the ball for a, only a little bit, then it's going to hit you in the forehead. Yeah, so I'm going to come back and ask you about working with builders in tough times, which sure. we have at the moment, but we'll we'll come back to that. And re- I mean, risk really, I think that's what property development is about. This is just managing risk, ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So, you know, property, it's still, as much as I 
you know, like physically building this thing and pointing to it at the end of the day. And, and you'll, you'll see my back. I have some pictures about this type of properties we build and that sort of stuff. Uh, it's really exciting stuff. But ultimately, it's a, it's a financial engineering process, right? So, and I have, you know, I have joint venture partners who've done projects with me who've never been any close to those properties, never been any, uh, you know, any close even to Melbourne. Um, and yet, that's not the reason why they're doing it, right? It's a, it's a financial transaction, uh, and that's kind of the most important part. We're also going to come to the projects that you're doing because we're going to talk about cash flow uh, related projects. But yeah, before, about that. before we get to that, so as a developer, and now that you're a builder, developer, developer, builder, whichever one uh, you want to rank first, what tips would you have for people listening who may be a developer for working with the builder to get a better outcome now that you've been on both yeah. sides of the fence? Great question, and I wish I wish I got that question uh, more. Um, and of course, I you know take what I'm about to say with a you know with a grain of salt because obviously I'm a little bit biased. I am a builder, and as much as I can try to just think as a developer, um, I've you know I've, I've you know I've seen it work well and bad, so I, I, that's going to impact a little bit my answer. But but listen, it makes a massive difference when you have a builder. On your side, okay? uh, 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 and Justin, I know you and I have spoken about you know all other projects where things haven't gone exactly the way the way we kind of all wanted, uh, kind of more broadly. And what I see as a difference between the projects that do really, really, really well uh, and the projects that get into real, real trouble, uh, and more importantly, the developer careers that go really, really, really well, and the ones that struggle for a long time is whether they have a builder in their team. Now, this is not motivational fluff or, or any of the stuff that we see out there all of the time, or, or just kind of a, you know, obviously the builder you will expect will say something like that. Um, this has a really, really pragmatic background to it, which is if you have the builder working with you, and sometimes it pays off to have that well before you have the project, and well before you have a building contract in place, uh, then you have all the knowledge uh, and all the experience of that builder working for you. This is also going to sound very, very counterintuitive, but you're actually likely to get better prices if you do that. Um, because once you have the builder you know, working for you, and once I know I'm working with a developer that I can trust, that is not going to go and shopping around for every single penny, then I'll be way more likely to put time and effort and resources into actually helping that builder, even outside of the constraints of just building the properties, even outside of the constraints of you know, the scope in the building contract. I'm more likely to do stuff that is not in the contract because that's going to help. I'm more likely to, you know, to go outside the boundaries of what I normally will do. And again, being a builder developer, I'm more likely to share my experience with that person too. Not only what I've seen as a developer, uh, but one of the great advantages I personally have as a developer is I see my developments and I see everyone else's too, right? Because I build a lot of them. So, um, yeah, 
but that needs to happen way before you ask a builder for a price. Uh, we have this culture of, well, get three quotes, pick the cheapest one. And the people who think they're more sophisticated, they go, well, pick five, you know, take the cheap one out and the most expensive out, because obviously the most expensive one out is, you know, it's overpriced and the cheapest one out doesn't know what he's doing. And then out of the tree in the middle, pick the one in the, you know, none of that stuff works, right? Because you're not comparing apples to apples. And as much as we can try, and I've seen some developers go to a massive extent to try to make these quotes comparable apples to apples. You'll never be able to do that because there's only one Henry, there's only one Stone Horizon. And Stone Horizon and Henry have things out there that other builders cannot replicate. That's good for some people and not great for other people. And, and that's fine. Um, but you need to be able to compare those things. So it's not just about well, if I compare exactly the same specs on both, then I can go and pick on price. I've always say to both my clients and my friends that the biggest problem with construction is that it's really, really hard to compare a great builder from a crappy one. Uh, but everyone knows how to compare a price. This is a simple thing to do. So it ultimately comes down to that for most people. And that's what gets them in trouble. Well, it's interesting that you touch on that because my other second key lesson around property development after risk is relationships. They're the two key components to property development, ultimately, in my opinion, risk management and then relationship management, working with people. You get those two right and then the rest can take care of itself or you'll solve the problems along the way. So uh, very good point there. And now that you've touched on relationships with builders it's probably a good segue into working with builders or negotiating through the risk of the market at the moment where we've got continuing escalation of build prices and blowouts in construction time what advice would you have for people out there for how to negotiate this this period of time specifically with the with a builder yeah um Listen, let's get the first part out of there. Uh, construction prices, you know, have gone up a ton, yeah? And I, I don't know, I wouldn't even want to mention a, a number because it'll date this, um, this, this episode too much. And to be honest, doesn't matter whether you're listening to this in the middle of the pandemic, which you're not anymore, as we're recording after that, but, you know, or, or you know, or in 2025, uh, this is still probably true. Construction costs will go up every year. Now, the last couple of years as we're recording this, it's been really, really crazy. I hope that, you know, five, 10 years from now, this stuff will normalize a little bit more, but they will continue to go up every year. That's just the nature of the world. That's just the nature of construction. All the cost increases related to materials, they're largely done. Okay? Now, now we're going back to normal cycles, right? Eight, 10% a year. Um, but the bit that's going to hit us now is labor. Labor's, labor will be the 2022, 2023 thing. Yeah? Uh, labor will go up. I, you know, you'll get, you know, you'll get carpenters who want more money, concreters who want more money, tilers who want more money. I I work with the same team all the time, right? It's my same carpenter, my same concreter, my same tiler, a couple of brick layers, but, you know, largely the same people all the time. Um, and I'm already having those conversations with them. 
hey, listen, Henry, I know, but you know, my people are asking me for more money. So what's the path to it? No, I don't, I don't want it necessarily now. And I know you have these jobs already committed and stuff. So, so what I've done is I basically set a path. I said, okay, well, listen, any project that I start talking about from now on, um, I can factor those things into the cost and I can have a conversation to the client. Um, but it's it's going to be hard. And the bigger the project, the harder it is, right? Because if it's if it's you know a nine studio property or a or, or a duplex or a four townhouse thing, uh, if it's any project under maybe a couple million dollars, you know the builder has kind of more chance of making it work than if it's you know ten townhouses, right? And it's a four million five million dollar project. Yeah, the, the, the uh, industry is definitely out of balance at the moment, in my opinion. Not in a healthy way. Yeah, well, and the developers are being squished, right? Because you have, you have, you know, prices. Every prices of the end product squishing you from the top. Yeah. The builders squishing you from the bottom. Uh, it's a bit, it's a bit like builders, right? Builders are being squished by existing contracts from the top that can't move, right? It's illegal to move them, so you're subject to the goodwill of your client in a way. Mm. Uh, but you're basically fixed there, and then you know construction costs continue to increase, right? And then there's no, yeah, you can have cost escalation clauses and provisional sums, and but you know, <laughs> banks are not never going to accept that, right? And you know, manageable was, risk is not a good thing for anybody. I was joking with a builder the other day, going, "So what do you do when you put quotes? It's just like the whole thing a provisional sum." <laughs> um, there is these. You know, this almost um, obsessive uh, approach with some developers out there on trying to prevent your builder from increasing the prices. How do I force my builder to kind of do what 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 he said in the contract to kind of stick to this price and to not increase it, even though, you know, we signed this contract a year ago and we're only going to start, you know, the probably three months from now. So, so it's two things there, right? So the first one is, again, going back to your relationship uh, comment before, if you have the right builder, that's less likely to happen because your builder be able to talk to you more proactively about where these cost increases are and where they're going. I know for the, you know, for the closed set of clients that we kind of work with, they already know what's happening. And when we're talking about a potential project, they know that if we do in the next six months, it's likely to be this. And if we're doing next year, it's likely to be this much more. And then after that, who knows? But obviously, we make predictions, right? I don't run a business based on, well, let me wake up today to see what the price of steel is going to be. Um, because again, I will be probably one of the casualties of the industry if that was the case. So if you're working with a great builder, and that builder has a good grasp on their cost base, which is the main driver of all of this, um, that's a good start, right? Because you'll be able to have visibility, right? And the the second thing is just surrender to the mechanics of the world. Yeah? We all will like dry days for the six or eight months or a year that we're building our projects. Guess what? If you have me, you know, if you have winter in the in the process, it's just not going to happen, right? If you have summer in the process, you know, uh, trades are going to disappear for two weeks during Christmas and New Year. Those things, they don't, you know, they're unavoidable whether you want them or not. Um, uh, so 
trying to lock in a contract in a way where you know nothing changes ever is 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 only going to be able to be do, done two ways, right? The first way is again you're working with a dodgy builder who's telling you that that's what's going to happen, uh, but he's either incompetent enough or desperate enough to get into a contract that will get both your project and him into trouble, right? That's the one way of doing it. Uh, I've never, the biggest disasters I've seen in my career uh, and some of the biggest disasters I've tried developers to, to kind of help solve have come that way, right? Um, the, the other way is for a builder to have so much margin and so much contingency in your project that he'll be able to take whatever, right? Um, and that's good. The price is not going to change. Um, and, you know, you'll be able to lock him down to that and the builder will be happy to do that. But you'll be paying more than you need perhaps to pay to get your project off the ground. And that's where this spirit of partnership um, has has worked really well. Has worked really well with us, right? We are actually partners of our own builder, right? Happen to be, you know, the same director on both entities. But but we have that kind of relationship, right? My my development entities contract my building entities, uh, and we have no other choice than to kind of run a very very transparent, very sort of open book type kind of arrangement between the two companies, and that has allowed us to do things that um, that a we couldn't do with other builders, but also that lowers the overall risk. You said it at the beginning, right? Property development is about risk and relationships. Uh, by doing that, you actually manage both sides of that coin. Yeah, and just going back to pricing, I always like to say to people, don't go for the lowest price. Look at value, the overall value picture and the proposition that you get, and that includes the builder and working with them. And I think now more than ever, that really is applicable. It's, Getting just looking at the cheapest one is going to end up costing you more in the long run, I think, at the moment, and generally speaking, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this, the reality still has been true for a long, long time. It just becomes really, really obvious in the last couple of years where picking the cheapest builder means your project doesn't get done, full stop, right? And now you have something um, that is sort of half built out there with a, you know, you're either in court. Or with a builder gone completely out of business, trying to recover some of that, guarantee you won't have enough money in your project to finish it. And it doesn't matter. Even if you did, you're going to go and hire another builder maybe a year after you hired the first one, um, let alone liability and risk and all that sort of stuff that builders are going to shy away from. You, you know, your cost base will have increased by then. All right. Well, let's <laughs> move on now to... Stone Horizon and cash flow developing, <clears throat> something that I have an interest in. Actually, the project I'm working on at the moment is cash flow driven or was developed or set up because it's going to provide cash flow. Awesome. So, Henry, let's talk cash flow developing. Yeah, listen, so you asked me before. What does that mean? Yeah, listen, so you asked me before where I started, right? And obviously, I started that sort of development you know, in the construction world. Um, but very, very, very quickly, I realized that as much as I love this thing that I'm doing now, uh, and I think, I don't think I'm one of those persons that will retire and drink mojitos in the Bahamas for the rest of the, 
the life is not not really the type of person I am. I, you know, I'll probably kill myself to be honest if I didn't have something to do. So retirement is not exactly my plans. I also realized that the process I went through um, in changing careers and doing all that stuff uh, helped me understand that sometimes you lose something one day and and you might not love it five or 10 years. Uh, so for me, cash flow was really important because of course, most people listening to this program are developers and in the development world, it's easy, right? It's easy to understand. You do a development, you get a chunk of money. You don't do a development, you don't get any money, right? Uh, and sometimes the cash flow is really lumpy, right? You might be in a project for 18, 24 months, two, three years um, before you actually get to see kind of the money at the end of the tunnel type of thing. Um, so I needed to do something that increased my level of cash flow, right? I, you know, I was happy uh, taking the big, the big chunk at the end of a project. That's just fine. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that I had something that produced cash flow without necessarily being me, me, me being as involved as I say on the development side of things. And I started having a look at, around and you're okay. So well, you know, I'm obviously in property. There's gotta be something around properties. That's kind of my area of um, of interest. You know, where where to go to. And I found um, amongst all the options, you know, you obviously have commercial and you have NDIS and you can do an Airbnb stuff. Uh, and you can do normal residential if you have a debt that is kind of low enough, or um, or you know maybe if it's in kind of you know in a in a you know, a property that is cheap enough, you might actually kind of be able to make it cash flow positive. Uh, but none of those things seem to me like they were going to make significant progress to where I needed to be. Um, so I had a look at two or three kind of major strategies, and eventually. I found um, this thing that you see behind me, which is kind of what we do, uh, uh, you know, uh, almost 80 or 90% of the projects we do now, um, which is, uh, we call them studio rentals. And it's based on the, the old concept of a kind of rooming house, or boarding house, for those of you who are not in Victoria, uh, where we build a single property and then we split that property in different rentable spaces and then rent each of those spaces to a different person. Um, now, they, what we've done is we've taken the rules and the regulatory framework, particularly in Victoria, um, around those properties, and we've been able to evolve it to create a very different product. So this is not the old rooming house uh, that people think as a you know party house or a drug house or you know uh, most people... Uh, don't think necessarily of nice things when they think about rooming houses in the traditional sense, where you have basically you know nine rooms, two bathrooms, and kind of you know a whole bunch of uh, people kind of trying to survive in that environment. Uh, so what we've done is we created our concept we call studio rentals, where each uh, each room uh, becomes a you know a, you know a studio. That studio has its own end suite has its own kitchenette, uh, its own sleeping area, and a little bit of a living area attached to it, even though it's all kind of in the same space, much like you will find in a service apartment. Um, and that provides people with affordable accommodation because obviously the rent, renting a space like that 
is um, is cheaper than renting a four bedroom, you know, two bathroom, double lock up garage house, um, but still allowing them to be have really really high quality accommodation. So these properties are not they're not cheap properties as such. Um, they're, they're really high quality. So you know you have you know timber like flooring. You still have you know stone bench tops in some areas, right? You have you know again they're sort of brand new, completely. Completely furnished, you know, porcelain tiles in the bathroom, uh, you know, so, you know, sometimes Italian tiles or Spanish tiles, uh, depending on the area we're in. So it provides a really, really sort of high-end experience in a much smaller space, somewhat to what you will find in a place like New York City or Hong Kong or Tokyo. So, in fact, um, um, you know, our our design director, who happens to be my wife as well, and I very, very often take, you know, take trips to this place. In fact, we have family in New York City. And every time we're there, we actually have a look around uh, to see what ideas about these properties can we import into the Australian market to just make it better. The smaller apartment, the smallest apartment in New York City is nine square meters. And the person living in there couldn't be happier. So ours are 27 to 30 square meters, each of these studios. So, you know, we can do marvels with that sort of stuff. Yes. Well, I just published a book, Henry, called Become a Million Dollar Property Developer. And one of the points I make in there, which is the number one lesson that I've learned over the last 10 years or so of being in property development, was the importance of cash flow. Yeah, cash flow makes makes it or um, you know makes it or breaks it. So you know, most Which, when you're getting started, it's probably not something that you think about at all. It's like just got to get the project done. It's fun. I get a big profit at the end, and that's it. That's it. And it's funny. Funny you mentioned that. It's one of the drivers that took me down this path. Is I have a very very good friend who's been a developer for many <clears throat> many many years. Is actually one of the persons who got me into the industry and supported me. Uh, a lot along the way, and and he always had a very very active strategy. He's a very very active guy, so always you know one development, another development, another development, another development. Uh, and what he found is he, fifteen years later, didn't want to do them anymore. Uh, but now I was a little bit of a slave to that process because you know accumulating decent decent amounts of cash flow takes takes quite a while you can't you know you know can't you can't make it happen overnight it just doesn't happen that way um so i really it's part of the reason why i realize that you know if i want to have some you know some cash flow you know for the next in the next 15 years or so i better start with small steps now so by the time i get there i have you know 200 300 i don't know whatever uh, amount of cash flow i need at the time um to basically sustain my lifestyle and so why is it that this typology of development is good for cash flow then yeah so it's good for a couple of reasons right so um they and, and it has a kind of whole bunch of kind of benefits to it right so um, the first one is those steps that i'm talking about are bigger right so each each of these properties produces more cash flow than uh, any other property that I've seen, you could buy with a similar investment. So, you know, just just to give a little bit of context here, 
and obviously, you know, we'll share some links and some stuff to more information for people and the like. I'll send some stuff to to Justin so he can kind of share it with the with the audience. But um, each of these properties, notionally, let's say, you know, I'm just going to take off a real example now, but it's, uh, say a million dollars, right, between the land and construction. Um, now that property has nine studios. Each studio rents for about two hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, per week uh, at the time that we're kind of recording this. Uh, at the end of the day, when it's all done and dusted with leverage and mortgage and maintenance and management and everything else in there, the the investor who owns that property ends up with about $50,000 in their pocket. Now, a million dollars, $50,000 doesn't sound like a lot. Um, but the bit that we're missing here is the magical property is you get to leverage, right? So that property is worth a million dollars, but the investor didn't put a million dollars in it. The investor probably put 300 grand on it, right? So now you're talking about 50 grand every year out of your 300 grand investment, which is about 15%, rounding numbers here a little bit. Um, And that cash flow will be there for the rest of the investor's life and their kid's life and the grandkids' life and potentially forever. Um, so after, you know, five, six years, depending on how you want to do the numbers, that person has no money in the deal. And then after that, they get 50 grand for the rest of their life. Sounded like a really, really good deal to me. So, uh, very, very quickly went and built a couple for me. Uh, and then as these things tend to happen, we're obviously all, uh, in a, in an industry where we all have good relationships and talk to each other. Um, and I started getting people in my circle and clients. Oh, that's awesome, man. You know, I want I want one of those. Would you build one for me? And I eventually went, well, okay, you know what? I guess I'm a builder. I could build one. I just build one for me. So I could build one for you. And then that set us down a path where eventually we sort of, you know, very, very heavily made these our focus to the point where if you go out there and search for Stone Horizon, this is the primary thing that you want to see out there. It's funny that you touch on legacy again, because that's another point I made in my book about one of the positive aspects of property development that you can leave a legacy. So if you're having these cash flow properties, that's definitely a way that you can um, help provide for future generations. Absolutely. Uh, and listen, I am not, you know, I I grew up with not a lot. Um I wasn't exactly poor or, or, you know, we didn't have the struggles that, um, that you know, other people have had. I think we were a little bit lucky in that regard. Um, even though I wasn't kind of born into this country, I, I come from what I call a gypsy family. And, you know, we kind of move all over the place and eventually I got here and got some great opportunities. So I wouldn't call my life a struggle, um, but I've learned the value of hard work. And I always kind of, you know, want my kids to to learn that value too. So I, I, you know, I feel a little bit conflicted by you know creating all these cash flow, and then my kids are never gonna have, be able, never gonna have to work. Yeah. Um. So so they will have to work, right? But what these give us is freedom, right? Because now, much like I'll probably do 10, 20 years from now, thirty years from now, I'll be able to work on something that is really making a difference without making finances part of my decision-making in that regard, right? So I don't know what my kids are going to do. They're only nine at the moment. So, you know, they'll, they'll decide what they want to do a little bit later. But 
um, they'll be able to go and you know make a difference in whichever way they want to make without having to think about how much that job pays. So these rooming houses or boarding houses or whatever you want to call them, are there any secrets? Do they just work anywhere? Good question. Um, no, unfortunately, they don't work anywhere. Um, it's probably um, in some in some aspects is actually a little bit more complexity to it than um, than say your typical development, which most people listen to this will be interested in, um, because the regulatory framework in which they in which they operate is critical. So now we operate in Victoria primarily. Um, and while we have clients from out of from everywhere, every state in um, in, um, in in Australia and, and even some people kind of overseas, the the properties we build we build in Victoria. And the reason why we build them in Victoria is because uh, the Victorian government has made a decision to support affordable accommodation. By removing a lot of the red tape around building this style of property. Um, so what they've done is effectively given us a something called a planning exemption, which means we can build these properties with no planning permit. Now, those of you developers listening to this, you will understand the value of what I just uh, said there. Um, but for those of you who might only be starting your development journey, it basically means that we can go from settling on the land uh, all the way to the first tenant moving in in six to eight months, as opposed to 18 months or two years in a, in a traditional development. Um, it also means the regulation is much more black and white about what's required and what's not required. So you're less likely to, to, to get into an argument with council about whether that window is too big or whether the, your garden is kind of pointing in the wrong place or quite honestly, whether that tree is too ugly or not. Um, their rules are really, really black and white. So provided we fit that framework of rules, um, then we have almost 100% certainty um, that that these will, will work from a regulatory perspective. And then the other side of it is what I call the market perspective. So, you know, you can build... These properties anywhere in Victoria where you can build a regular house. Um, however, doesn't mean that you should. Okay? There are places where the demand is not um, significant enough uh, to build these type of properties. Um, there's probably demand everywhere, but there's more demand in some places than others. And if I had a choice, I want to go and put these properties in a place where I have massive demand and not a lot of competition. Um, also, the economics of it, right? So, if you try to build one of these properties, you know, I don't know, in an inner suburb of Melbourne, you're probably going to be paying millions of dollars for the block of land. You're probably never going to see that money back in rent, even though the rents are higher there. Um, so, what what that has taken me, Justin, uh, just to kind of go kind of straight to to an example, is my portfolio. It's largely in regional Victoria. Now, why do I do that? Because the cash flow is better. And I'm not doing this for any other reason other than cash flow. I'm also a developer. I do that as my, as my kind of equity creation strategy. Uh, but for cash flow, 
I tend to go to regional Victoria. Now, you don't have to go to regional Victoria. There's plenty of places in metropolitan Melbourne where this works. Just the cash flow is not as good. Well, that's interesting. And so do you, it's kind of like looking at a house as nine separate income streams, right? Rather than just renting. It is. It is. And I guess that's, that's one of the other kind of great advantages of this, right? It has an inherent level of resilience and hedging to it, right? Um, because what ends up happening is if one tenant moves out, uh, you've lost your, what is it, 12% of your income or so? So you can hardly notice it, right? Um, and not every tenant lives at the same time. So, you know, you you don't go through these massive up and downs that you go with traditional real estate, whether it's commercial real estate or whether it's, um, or whether it's residential real estate, where, you know, when it's rented, it's all nice and good. And then your tenant decides to leave, and that becomes a major headache for everybody. Um, here, we just accept that. You know, people will come and go as they, you know, as they as they change through their cycle. Um, but on the aggregate, the property will always produce positive cash flow. Uh, and I think on, on the last one that I did, the numbers on, on one of mine, um, it's a nine studio property, and I think anything about five, four or five studios are making money. So, and I've never been that low. You know, not not even. Um, not even, uh, you know, a few weeks after we started. So, uh, yeah, you get the advantage of having some multiple streams of income. Uh, you also get those incomes to be much more stable in nature. Uh, they will continue to grow. The same rent, the same normal rentals will grow. Uh, but think about it, right? So in a normal in a normal house, you probably put up your rent, I don't know, $10, $20 a week, right? Every every kind of year or two, depending on on, you know, how much on the ball you are. Well, if you do the same thing here, you're increasing your rent significantly, right? You're increasing your rent, you know, $90 per week, not not, not, not 10 or 20. So, um, yeah, having those multiple tenants provides a benefit to everybody. More cash flow for the investor on the aggregate, more resilience in the fact that that cash flow is divided in smaller pieces, which, you know, if someone stops paying, well, again, it's 10 or 12%. Uh, if someone goes, it's 10 or 12%. If one of these rooms becomes unhabitable for whatever reason, uh, bar the whole property going up on fire, um, you know, that's, you know, 10 or 12%. Uh, but there's no reason why the rest of the complex will not continue work. And then on the tenant side of things, you know, well, the rent is a lot smaller, uh, maintenance is a lot lower, um, and that makes it, way more attractive for certain kind of people, particularly the sort of people that you see behind me. So, you know, we create, you know, we call what we do, you know, modern living for young professionals because we're finding a new wave of, you know, of 20s and early 30 years old who don't want a big house with, you know, a big backyard or any of that stuff. They want to live in a small space that is really, really high quality, really, really functional, uh, but it doesn't cost them a fortune because they prefer to spend the rest of their money in their own experiences or on 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 uh, uh, on activities that happen sort of outside of their house, if you like. Well, I'm sure if people are interested about that, they'll get in touch, Henry. So um, we'll give them contact details later on. But let's just switch gears a little bit uh, now. 
and ask what do you think you've learnt about yourself from getting involved in property development? Ah, uh, yeah. Listen, I the, the first thing I've learned, and I think I think I've known this for a while, but property development really, really brings it up to the front. Is I'm an incredibly impatient person. I want stuff to happen. And you well, did property I, development. <laughs> I want to happen stuff. I, I want stuff to happen uh, to happen quickly, right? I'm, I'm like your typical Gen X out there, I think. Um, and property development has has uh, taught me a lot about how to manage that, uh, because in development, as most people listening to this will know, nothing happens really quickly. Uh, however, there is a positive side to me having that characteristic, which is while nothing happens really, really quickly, actions sometimes need to be taken decisively and quickly, right? Because if you are, if I were a really patient person, really sort of relaxed, you know, uh, sort of Hakuna Matata style, like my kids sometimes can call it, um, then then you know things will take way longer than they do, right? Uh, because we will just sit on them and be there'll be no sense of urgency, uh, and pretty well just wouldn't happen, right? I, I'm, I you know I I I know someone at the moment who's going through a project that's been running for five and a half years, uh, and you know that's it's just because the people they're working with have no no sense of urgency around making things happen. Um, because of my impatience, I go like, okay, well, you know, we get something from council today. Say, like, okay, when are we responding to it? Can we respond to it now? Do we need to do some work before we can respond to it? What's the earliest we can actually make that happen? And um, while we'll still need to be patient and kind of manage my frustration with timelines, um, that means the projects get shortened uh, and we can deliver an outcome way quicker than we could otherwise. So it's not all bad. Uh, but it is a personal struggle, and I got to admit to that. No wonder you got into the types of developments that don't require you to have to get a permit. <laughs> <laughs> if only there were more types of projects like that, I think lots of developers would be very happy not having to go through the planning process. But anyway, uh, what about your top tip, Henry, for developers out there who are listening who maybe want to take their business to the next level? Yeah, so I'll, I'll do two. Yeah, because I'll be I'll be doing a disservice to uh, to the builder community out there if I don't put these out there in public. So I'll do it now. Talk to your builder well before you need a quote. If you're having a question, if you're having a talk to your builder about a quote, your price fix is already fixed. You just don't know it yet, right? Because all the decisions, all the design decisions you made. All the all the cost saving opportunities that you had, they're largely gone. Yeah, so your steel columns are already in place, right? Your design is already done. None of that can be changed. If you work with a builder earlier in the process, they'll have that construction cost inside to bring into your project, right? Um, so the earlier you involve the builder you're going to work with, the better it's going to be. Now, I understand there has to be some commercial tension on it. We all we all understand that. And I understand there's competition in this business. And we, that thing that makes us all better for it. Uh, but there's no reason why you need to wait 
until you have prices on the table to deal with those two things. Yeah, You can still tell who's a good builder and who's a, good, a bad builder out there. You can probably shortlist to a small number of it. You can even pick who the builder is going to be based on maybe a sample high-level number. Your best interest is served by having your builder in the table earlier. Um, that's one thing, right? Uh, the other thing uh, is it's about you know the type of projects you do, right? Always accept that things are going to change along the way. Um, you know, there's a there's a nice military term that no plan survives contact with the enemy. I'm not saying that you know property development is like going to war, although depending on which council you're doing it in, sometimes <laughs> it feels a bit like it. Uh, but you need to accept that things are going to have to change along the way. Uh, and agility and flexibility, it's probably one of the best characteristics for any of us in the development world to have. Yes, I agree. You need to have mental agility to have to deal with the issues that come up along the way because it's one of the guarantees that you've got. There's going to be stuff that happens. Absolutely. There's no... I I am yet to see a single project that you know it started with with a plan and finished exactly the way everyone imagined. Chish, uh, I'm yet to see a construction part of a development that started with a set of plans and a building permit, and there wasn't something unexpected happening along the way. Uh, and having that mindset of well, you know, stuff is going to happen and we're just going to have to deal with it. Um, you know, could serve a lot of people better rather than trying to stick to the original plan because it's not only hard to do, but it's also ultimately going to lead you to a suboptimal outcome. It's not going to be the best result for everybody. Mm. And then what about the best piece of advice you've ever been given, Henry? What would that be? Uh, to get started as quickly as I could. Um, as I realized that property was going to be on my journey, I went as most people in you know in the, that strategy slash consulting firm uh, field will do, uh, I started kind of gathering a whole bunch of views and a whole bunch of opinions. And eventually I bump into a guy that says like, all right, so how confident are you that property is it? And well, well, you know, I'm pretty confident. I think it's it. I'm just trying to figure out what the best angle is. So like, well, I think you're doing yourself a disservice because you haven't done it yet. So let's go and do something, right? Um it doesn't mean go and buy the first site that shows up and overpay for it and then get a project that you know, is going to kill you in the process. Um, but, geez, I wish I've started my development journey when I was in my 20s or even only 10 years ago. I'll be, I'll be in such a different place um, compared to where I am, where I am now. Um, so, yeah, it's very, very easy to, you know, just read everything out there and, you know, listen to every single episode Justin puts in in the last, you know, six, seven years and and, and not do anything. Um, I, I will say the biggest, the best, you know, best push I've been given along the way has been uh, that little push I needed to just take action and kind of get started and make it happen. A lot of the learning will happen after you start, not before you start. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter how lucky you get. Um, you know, and I think Justin, I see you're nodding too. So I'm pretty sure it has happened to you too. 
you think you have it all sorted, you get started and and then you realize that that you don't, that you need to accept that learning will happen after. Well, I'm just thinking that it's such a shame that you can't just get success from listening to my podcast, Henry, because then I could charge a lot more for people to listen to it. <laughs> oh, listen, I, you know, I, I've, I've listened to, I don't think every single episode, you have like a massive number, but I, I've listened to quite a few and there's quite a few that have added, not only added value to me, but that have, you know, sometimes it's a little nuggets, yeah? Someone makes a comment or someone says something, or you go, ah, that's kind of like this other thing that is happening to me over here. So, you know, learning is always important. Now, that's probably where it starts, yeah? But you should learn enough to get started as opposed to try to know everything, which is what most people try to do out there. Yes, well, I love the saying, Henry, that you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. Hello, that. I'm actually still that one, Justin. That's <laughs> another little nugget for you to take away, <laughs> Henry. Well, I told you. It's always something. <laughs> All right. Well, where can people find out more about you, Henry, if they're interested? Uh well, listen, uh, you know, I'm I'm pretty visible kind of out there. If you want to find me, it's a thousand probably ways of uh, of doing it. Um, you know, if you go and search for Stone Horizon up there or go to stonehorizon.com.au, there's a website there. There's a lot of material, you know. Uh, I'll probably share a couple of links uh, for, uh, for Justin to kind of share with everybody uh, to provide more insight about the kind of strategy of what we do uh, and that sort of stuff. Um, but then, you know, after that, if you search for Henry Villa in all the social places where you will normally search for stuff, you will probably find me. Um, it's not that hard to get my email or to my phone number. Um, feel free to kind of, yeah, reach out. More than happy to help. A lot of people help me along the way. So for me, this is a way of kind of repaying back some of that debt of gratitude that I have uh, with the with the universe. And, you know, again, uh, we're, we're lucky to be in an industry where, um, you know, me kind of providing value to other people, um, make everybody better, not just not just me. So, um, yeah, happy to help in any way I can. No, and it's a great model that uh, you've come up with or that exists for those rooming house type developments with cash flow because they can be done as a project. There, there's a lot to be learnt along the way. And then you've got that great income and cash flow producing asset at the end of it. Absolutely. Um, it also that that cash flow also helps you do other stuff. It is not again not just about you know travel and drinking mojitos in the Bahamas or buying or buying a nice car. Um, you know it, it becomes you know income on top of your income, which will serve, you know, will help for serviceability. It will actually help you do other development projects. For me, the two parts of the business personally have have become these interesting kind of dynamic circle where I do a development, the profit that comes out of that, some of that goes to the rooming houses and the income of 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 those rooming houses then helps me get into kind of the next project and so on and so forth. It is not a need an either or thing. Um you know, but I will obviously encourage everyone uh kind of listening to to the show to kind of consider whether it is something that might uh might become part of their strategy or part of their portfolio. Yes. Well, after talking to you, I've decided that I need to take on the role of design director in the business and start going on some overseas trips to New York and Hong Kong and 
European cities to have a look at their their uh, properties to get ideas. Well, if you need some company, let me know. I'm happy to tag along. <laughs> All right, Henry, it's been awesome talking with you today. It's been fantastic having you on the Property Developer Podcast. You've shared heaps of great stuff with us and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the opportunity to share. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas, and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.